The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show, and I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And as you know, you can listen to us every Wednesday live from 10 to 11. That's Eastern. And at the end of the day, we archive the show. Joining me this morning are my two guests. My first guest is Catherine Tristan. She's author of Why Worry? Stop Coping and Start Living. Uh, she is a uh, research scientist on the faculty at Washington University School of Medicine and has had 30 years of worrying. So she's going to give us this kind of from-the-trenches perspective as well as scientific perspective as to how we can stop worrying and start being productive. Second guest is David Ortman. He's a social worker, a licensed social worker, and the title of his book is Sexual Outsiders, Understanding BDSM Sexualities and Communities. And in case you don't know what BDSM stands for, it stands for uh, bondage. Um, Sexual Outsiders is bondage, domination, sadism, and masochism. And so we're going to learn about a whole new community and uh, how they cope and uh, some of the uh, quagmire of unique problems that they face. But first on the show is Catherine Tristan. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we're going to go from worrying to sadomasochism. So. <laughs> interesting, <laughs> interesting progression. <laughs> uh, progression, yeah. Okay. So, well, of course, reading your book, I identify with that. I don't know who wouldn't. But... Uh, <laughs> Why worry? Stop coping and start living. Um, why write the book? I mean, I mean, I understand why write the book, I guess, but maybe you should explain it. Um, why write it now? Why did you decide to write a book about worrying? Well, I am an anxiety survivor. I consider myself a worry and, and anxiety survivor. And, you know, I had this uh, for, for so many years uh, until I figured out what was going on in, in my life. And so, um, you know, I, it, it sort of developed progressed from worry, being a worrier, to being more anxious, and then finally kicking into panic attacks, which is what worry can do if we don't keep it in check and, and figure out what's going on. So, you know, I had this problem. I felt humiliated and uh, ashamed because here I was in a, in a scientific profession, so logical, and I had this feeling that was so overpowering. So once I figured out what was going on, uh, I decided that I would write a book about it after I overcame this problem. I mean, I know how to get over this problem. There are many things we can do to help ourselves. So that's why I wrote the book, is that I wanted to share what I learned in in simple and and fairly easy ways uh, to basically rewire your brain out of being a chronic worrier into someone who's more peaceful and happy. Yeah, well, I think that's a, 
a, you know, a great goal or a vision for all of us because I think that most people that I talk to, including family, friends, and myself, do worry. And I think the statistic that you have in the book is that at least 60 million Americans suffer from anxiety or depression, which worry can just easily bounce right into. Um, and what do we worry about? First, let's talk about that. What, are, what do we worry about the most? Well, you worry is so global. Um, a lot of if you look at look at the uh, the polls, a lot of people are worried about money. Uh, you know, eighty eight percent of people are worried about their retirement. Are they going to be okay in? Uh, you know, what's their retirement doing? Will they have enough money to to handle that? And even people are worried about the economy in general. I mean, that's a global problem. Seventy four percent about paying the rent or paying your mortgage or. How, are you going to be needs. able to go on vacation? All of those things, right? Yes, I mean, worry encompasses all kinds of things, obviously, but I think what, what, what people, uh, a lot of people are focusing not, now on is just a basic need of, will I be okay? Do I have enough uh, money to uh, handle today's needs and tomorrow's needs to raise my family and to be okay when I'm older? So we worry about our finances. We worry about our health. I know that's a big one. I mean, yes. Yeah, so we're always worried about our health, and how can we not be worried since we see advertisements on television all the time, uh, pharmaceutical companies advertising pills and drugs to make sure that we stay healthy, supposedly. But all right, So we worry about our health, and the, I think the next big thing, Catherine, unless, is worrying about our careers, our jobs, you know, our professions. Um, those seem to be the big three. Are there any uh, others? I know I think that that pretty much encompasses it. I mean, we worry every day about lots of different things, and it's sort of to to put the nail uh, on which particular one. Well, today I'm worried about my health. Uh, to, tomorrow I'm worried about my money. Then what about me taking care of the family? Or I've got an elderly uh, person in the family I'm having to take care of, as well as my uh, my uh, youngsters. So um, there there's so many things that assault us, uh, and I think that the the top three are as you mentioned. I wake up in the middle of the night worrying, and I know that I'm not alone in that. Uh, I don't necessarily wake up in the morning and start worrying, but it's when in the middle of the night is when I start worrying about all these things that, particularly at that point, I have have no control over it. So, uh, because what am I going to do in the middle of the night about what I'm worrying about? It seems like the worry is just a waste of time, isn't it? Well, you know, actually worry is a good thing. In when it's held in balance, and so how is that possible? Like, isn't worry that you know something we should totally avoid? Well, the answer is no. Uh, worry is a natural process that's in our body. It, it and on the good side of worry, it may help us uh, say over prepare. Uh, if we have to give a presentation for our company or if we're going to be taking a test. But as long as we don't obsess over it, that's the, that's the balance. Right, um, so we, we worry about our health, and that may mean that we go to the dentist every six months and get our teeth cleaned and checked, or we go right. to the doctor and we go once a year. That's healthy worry. It helps that's us. That's healthy, okay. yes. Get in better shape for a sports competition. The, the thoughts that are feeding you that are like, do better, prepare more. The thoughts that, that uh, harm us um, are when we go overboard on those normal reactions. But let's talk about that then. When does it become, at what point does worry become stressful, not helpful, and nonproductive? Well, it, when worry is starting to hit the red zone, there, there are some 
telltale signs that you need to watch out for, and one is sleep problems. You know, it's you know, would you, it, are you going to sleep at night, uh, having trouble going to sleep at night because you're worried about something? Is it the first thing you you think about when you wake up? Um, are you overeating or undereating? You, you know, and and also, are you tending to be more crabby or angry or sort of on edge? And when you add all of those up together, now you know sometimes we're always going to be having some sleep issues or are crabby, but when you you see all these things start to cluster, then you know your, your worries are, are circulating in the background and they're getting into the red zone and, and you want to try to snare it before it ever gets to that point, but at least if you recognize that happening to you, you can take steps to try to help yourself. So the first thing is you have to be able to recognize it, as you say, you call it the red zone, when it's not really kind of figure out in what areas you're worrying is not healthy, it's not productive, and so you always have to be, I guess, on top of that. Do you always, and, and, okay, once you realize, maybe I am, I'm waking up in the world, uh, obsession keeps coming up when you're obsessing about yeah. something. Is that it? When you keep obsessing about, well, let's say you keep worrying about that you have uh, breast cancer, and you go to the doctor, and you get checked, and you have your mammograms, and you do what you're supposed to do, but yet you keep obsessing about it. Is that a good example? That's a good example, and actually, uh, it, the numbers are quite uh, crazy. Is that seventy-five percent of visits to your primary care physician are often stress-related? So you know we are feeling lots of stress, and 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 we a lot of us are checking that out. Some of us are over worrying about that, but you know helpful worry. Uh, tries to find solutions. It, it tries to be solution-oriented to come up with uh, with ways to handle it. I mean, that is the purpose of worries, is to avoid threats. And it, it's, it, it loops into the negative when we obsess over it. Uh, and that's part of the problem. I mean, this is a psychological immune system that is a natural way to react to threats, just like we have a biological immune system that protects us. Well, that's what, what worry is trying to do. But it was never meant to be the generalist. It's the soldier who's feeding us thoughts as if on a conveyor belt. And we're supposed to be the general who picks which thoughts we pay attention to as opposed to letting the soldier run the show. So it, it largely is up to us to, to be the one who directs our thoughts and what to agree with, what not to agree with. Well, how do we overcome some of this worry stuff, as you're saying? We want to be the general. We don't want to be the foot soldier just letting this worry going all over the place. But what about we are bombarded every day with horrible news, whether it has to do with climate change or whether it has to do with war or finances or all the topics we just talked about. It's like every day we get bombarded with that stuff. How do we kind of filter that out? I mean, because I think that contributes to our worry. Number one, and my next question is, what about, do you think some people are more, you're a scientist, research scientist, have a, what, do you have a degree in chemistry? Uh, biology. Biology. Okay, biology. This is even better. I mean, do you think some of us are more prone to, to worrying that there's a kind of a chemical reaction that some of us have that maybe overreacts to stress rather than is able to keep it in tow? I guess those are two Entirely different question. Yeah, well, let's take the second one first because yeah. I can remember that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, um, you know, that's that middle age thing. No, that, yeah. I'm not programming, programming myself for that. But yeah. yes, are we prone to worry? The answer is yes. Um, you know, it tends to run in family, people who have anxiety issues. I mean, my mother, my grandmother all had anxiety issues. My, my sisters have anxiety uh, issues or had, you know, like me. Um, so we can have tendencies. We are wired in a certain way. Uh, you know, we have the family dynamic that we're raised in. In a certain way, maybe worry is is the norm. If you don't worry about enough, you know, if you worry about enough, maybe it won't happen. Kind of idea. So we are wired to that. We're 
uh, raised in that way, but we're not, we're not, we don't have to be that way. We, we ultimately have the, uh, the um, power of choice, whether we agree with that or not. But it takes some reprogramming and rewiring to get out of those natural patterns that we have. It takes effort. So why worry? I want your website, too. I just want to keep on mentioning that, whyworrybook.com. Uh, listeners can go to as well um, as reading your book. But, um, okay, so why worry? We have to be cognizant of it, especially, I think, if we come from families, as you say, like your brothers and sisters, and you have a whole family of warriors. So it's either the nature-nurture thing, because you probably grew up in an environment that causes you to worry more, and plus you maybe have that biochemical uh, kind of... Uh, whatever it is going on in your body that will make you worry more as well. Um, so what do we do about it? What, what, I mean, do you have to go into therapy, or can you control it on your own, or how do we handle it if we realize that we are over, we're worrying where it's not productive? Well, well, that's a great question, and, and sort of, you know, do we all need therapists, or, you know, it depends on how far into worry and how much it's, it's uh, affecting your life. Uh, do you feel you can find solutions? Maybe you just need some help or some, some you know, to a discussion with, a, with a, a, a good therapist that you really connect with. So, so maybe that would be help, helpful. But there's also the idea, uh, which is largely what I did, and I, I saw a therapist, and, and uh, you know, that, that helped me get some tools, but I needed to come up with this on my own. So the question is, well, well, what can you do on a very practical level? And one of the things that I try to make people aware of is just how that, you know, what you're picking off the conveyor belt. And a lot of times what we're doing is terribleizing, which is catastrophizing, making something that could be bad into something that's worse. We keep pulling off thoughts off that conveyor belt to lead us down the track of this is bad, so that is bad, this could be that, and we keep going down that track. So to to, uh, exit from that, we have to step back a little bit and say, no, I'm not going to choose those thoughts, but I can also choose to what I call possibilize, to create potential positive vision of what might happen, because really, 85% of what we worry about never happens. So maybe it's just better to think about the positive side of it than getting upset with the negative side. But we also have to change some of our behavior traits, and one of those is perfectionism, and you know, maybe you can relate to that, too. Like, you know, I certainly wanted things to be a certain way, and in my life and everything that happens around me to be a certain way, and it just doesn't happen that way. Well, I want to interrupt you there because I think that's a good point. I don't worry so much about things that I feel I have control of. You gave an example in the beginning of the show, like if you have to prepare for a big lecture. Well, I know that if I do prepare, I'll probably do pretty well. I mean, I might do great. I may, you know, Some days are better than others, but if I prepare, I'm pretty confident and I don't really worry about it. I mean, I worry about it if I'm not prepared, but that's my fault and my choice. The stuff that I worry about, though, is the stuff that I feel comes from left field. You know, I always, my brother and I have had this conversation. He'll be worried about something. I said, don't worry about that because the really bad stuff always seems to come from left field, something I wasn't even worried about or didn't even expect. I mean, like some kind of terrible diagnosis, health, for instance, which I feel I don't really have control over, or accidents or things like that. Those are the things that I start worrying about, and I don't even have any control over that. Well, it's true, and what you have to do is is remember that what 
can you control and what can't you control? And there's really very little we can't control. I mean, just to give you a personal anecdote, as, as I was uh, writing uh, my book uh, this this last winter, um, I suddenly had uh, a situation occur where uh, a doctor told me I was, I was going to need to have surgery and that, you know, this particular problem, it potentially was um, a malignancy. And so I was like, really? I'm writing a book about not worrying and this, this is, is this a refresher course? You know, or, but uh, the bottom line was, I had to use my own tools, and one of the major things that I started started using was live in the present moment. You know, the past is over. Don't try not to worry about that. The future is is in a fog. We don't know what's going to happen, but right here, right now, things are okay, and I know that I can handle whatever comes along. So one of the things that helped me out in dealing with this, and I did have the surgery, and it was not malignant, and I'm fine and healthy and good. And um, uh, and and you know, talking about worry because <laughs> once again, I've had to deal with that, but in a productive way. Staying in the present moment is a big thing that helps us. I think staying in the present moment is huge. It sounds simple when you say it, but yes. it really isn't. Like, that's a great example. You know, you need, to, you need another test. Maybe it comes to health or you need surgery. You have no idea what the outcome is going to be. All you know is what's happening right now, and that you deal with what's happening in the present. Another thing that you say, of course, having read the book, but one of the other things that we can do, and you're a scientist, you say that if we kind of practice these kinds of healthy ways of responding to worry or not worrying, we can rewire our brains. What does that mean? So this is the exciting new uh, science called neuroplasticity. Neuro meaning nerves or neurons and plastic plasticity meaning plastic or changeable. And so really what neuroplasticity refers to are brand new studies showing us that while we used to think the brain was pretty much it was set, it was not going to make any changes, is that uh, uh, new, uh, new nerves are wired all the time. And what they have found out from the newest studies are that thoughts trigger new growth. So how you think and how you what you focus about uh, will trigger new growth. That is what's called rewiring your brain. And they had this little saying, uh, you know, nerves that fire together wire together. So it means concentrated focus and on uh, changing your thoughts and thought patterns. You can actually change around your automatic uh, negative reactions into ones that are more positive. But it takes a little time to do that. Yeah, and you can do that at any age. You know, also they used to think, well, you know, by the time you're over 60 or over 50, that's it. It doesn't, you know, you're not going to be able to change those neurons. You're not going to be able to, but that's not true. No, absolutely. Yeah, at any age you can do that, which is good. That's good news. Yeah, even the elderly. The elderly are still rewiring all of the time. So, uh, you know, this uh, uh, this is a very... Uh, scientifically based idea that we can change. And actually, uh, some of the studies show that, you know, people, for instance, who practiced piano in one study versus those who imagined practicing piano, they did brain scans before and after. And this is like a practice piano for like an hour a day for five, uh, ten days. And, and the people who just imagined, who never played piano before, none of them, and imagined doing that. When they did brain scans of those people, even the people who imagined playing the simple little uh, melody that they, they were taught had had the same changes in their their brain scan than to those who actually were on the piano, so uh, practiced on the piano. So that shows us the really powerful nature of our thoughts and how we can help ourselves. Or and Catherine, if we don't, that's to hurt extremely, extremely powerful. So in other words, if you're sitting there practicing positive thoughts and concentrating on the present, 
you can actually change those neurons, change that stuff that's happening in your brain so that you calm down, you don't worry. Um, that's really good news. Here's another one I think that, that you mentioned that I think is we can all do is what about when you're hanging around with people who are always negative? I mean, that's a difficult, and they, they begin to affect you after a while, whether it may be somebody in your family who you can't just say, well, I'm not going to spend time with them, but if, you know, if it's somebody, a coworker, or if it's a friend, you know, you may not spend as much time with them. So what do you do about that? Well, and there's a biological basis for that too. Things that things that are called uh, mirror neurons. You know, we we tend to we can take in another's energy. You know, we 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 model what they're doing, and there's a dynamic there. So you you know you have to set limits sometimes. You um, you you have to step up to the bat and 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 be uh, more self nurturing for yourself. Step away from a situation. Refuse to go there. And if someone's talking about the negative things, maybe you know you can be supportive, but you don't have to feed into their, that frenzy. Um, just say, well, I hope things get better for you. Um, another thing is that, that I like to say is, you know, in your dealings with people or people who want things from you and you are over-giving or over-helping uh, to your own uh, detriment, is, is that no is, is, is a, not a four-letter word. You know, it's okay to say no if, if someone's wanting something from you, uh, either they're being negative or if they, people want too much from you and you have to protect your Yourself, otherwise, you're going to go down the the, the stressful anxiety uh, road. So, so I think setting limits and establishing boundaries is a really good thing to do. I, I so do I, and I think it took me. And I'm a therapist, I'm a, a social worker, but just personally, that took a long time because I think maybe because I am a, a a counselor and a therapist. I mean, people would come to me, and I particularly had a friend who was always everything was always negative and so she would come to me as if I would be able to fix it and in a way that you know made me feel good it made me kind of like kind of fed on my self-esteem but after a while it did just the opposite as you're talking about and just it was constantly negative and then it affects obviously my mood and how I feel about things in a negative way and I had to set limits no I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get sucked into your world that's not what I'm going to do setting limits setting boundaries really important not easy, but it certainly can be done. Right. Otherwise, you're yes. a sponge for negativity, and you know they're, you're not really helping them that much either um, by feeding into to that type of energy. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a practice that takes a little time to figure out how to do. Now, let's. What you, do we want to get specific about? I mean, the holiday season is coming up. People seem to get more anxious around the holiday season for whatever reason. You maybe want to describe that and any kind of tips that. Um, they can follow or you, to, you know, not get overly anxious or overly worried. And why do people, and I know people do get overly anxious during the holidays, not just the Christmas and Hanukkah, and, but, you know, Thanksgiving, uh, even New Year's. It just seems that, like, holidays bring up a lot of issues with people and they kind of tend to obsess and worry more. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's a really polarizing time uh, of of year. Uh, you know, maybe issue family issues that are can kind of lay in the uh, waiting. Uh, you know, maybe you're thrown up together because now you have to visit these people or they're visiting you or, you know, the, the family get-togethers or friend get-togethers. And so it can be a, a polarizing time of year. We think about what we don't have. And the, the biggest thing with the holidays that causes our stress is our expectations. You know, if you have a conflict in your expectations, that's the, that's the uh, mix that will cause you to have stress and stress and worry. So uh, part of what we need to think about to change during the season is change what we are expecting. 
Right, give us an example, an actual case history kind of example, specifically. Right. So, you know, if expectations, uh, you know, I'm expecting to be able to provide all kinds of uh, presents for everyone in my family. We used to always do that. Um, and I feel bad if I, if we're not. And, and so what we, what we've tended to do, and because everyone can be in a financial, uh, bind, one, just to give a simple example, is that we've now drawn names. So we've changing our family traditions to fit in with how things, how the family changes. Uh, you know, maybe we give away cookies this year instead of going out and charging up a lot of presents, you know. Uh, um, and and the, the main thing is, you know, if you expect everyone to behave a certain way too, you know, getting into the more serious levels, that I expect this person to be friendly and loving and kind, but they aren't any other time of the year, so why should they be that way now? You know, just to be a little more open as to what happens and, and demand less of of people and ourselves with, with how we react. Right. So expectations, kind of you have to reorganize your, your thoughts in terms of your expectations. Make them maybe more realistic, is that what you're saying? I mean, yes, and just be, be more flexible. You know, step back a little bit, open up to other possibilities instead of the one that you're demanding of the situation. You know, maybe this person is not going to act that way. You know, maybe I, I can't have as many people over to a party as I really want. Um, you know, maybe I can't afford all the presents that I want to buy. But there are other possibilities that will also be just as enjoyable and fun. And, and if you focus on what's enjoyable about it, you tend to draw that more of that to you rather than focusing on the perf- needing to have um, my demands met and things to be perfect. So expect fun, uh, expect the pleasure. Try not to, to have this... Uh, diagram as to exactly how this is supposed to go for me to be happy. We set ourselves up for disappointment and worry is what you're, a little bit of what I hear you saying. Yes. And we don't have to do that if we kind of reevaluate the situation, as you say. I mean, you gave the exam. I mean, that's a good example, presents. I have, and I hear this all the time. Oh, I have 20 presents to buy and I have to buy. Well, why do you have to? Can, can, you, you don't necessarily have to. As you say, you can change you can change the, the dynamics, and, and I think you don't have to have 50 people to a party. You can have 20 people to the party. Um, so there are lots of options, and options that are more realistic, and then you don't put yourself in this worrying situation. Um, one of the things that you talk about, and this is a huge problem, and uh, as we all know, is the overweight obesity issue, and you actually say that worrying can ca- and, uh, causes stress, which makes us fat. How does that work? Well, you know, there are studies that show that workplace stress really contributes to a large extent to to, uh, obesity. Uh, 74% of men say that the the stress that they feel in their workplace contributes to to overeating and and the problem. And and almost the same number of women, 62%. So when we, you know, it's almost like... um, you know, we're feeding ourselves maybe to, to, to try to feel better in, in some way, but we're not dealing with the problem. So we're pushing that off, and, and instead we're finding other solutions that, that aren't really helping us. So, you know, obesity related to stress uh, is a big problem in the, in the country, and, and, um, and it's getting worse. It's actually not getting better. Yeah, I was going to say, it is, it is getting worse. And so what is your prediction for the future in terms of us as kind of non-worriers or trying to be more realistic about our, our worrying and, and to take control? Are there other specific kinds of things that we can do? I mean, I know there are because you have them in the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, and this is kind of related to the eating thing. Put an embargo on junk food. Don't do it. It affects your mood. It, it, does, it, it doesn't 
do anything in a positive way for your mood. It does create stress and, and worry, et cetera. So that's, we certainly have control over that. Um, another thing you say is take a hike. What do you mean by take a hike? <laughs> well, it's kind of a joke that, hey, take a hike, you know. But the, the, what I'm actually saying here is to go out and connect with, uh, with, uh, with nature. You know, what, uh, just to, to, even to touch the earth is what, you know, you get grounded. That, that's what that means is getting grounded. And I, and I say they don't call it Mother Nature for nothing. You know, this is a, a very uh, strong way for us to, to get back out into our roots, essentially. Listen to the birds. Look up in the sky at, the, at night. Look up at the stars. Um, you know, remove yourself a bit and connect with the natural setting that, that can also be our lives. That's an important thing to do. Yeah, I think it is. I did it yesterday. I want you to know that because I, I and my listeners know this, I try to walk at least five or six days a week, four miles a day. Yesterday I had all kinds of, and I had a lot going on yesterday, and I had a lot of excuses. Got to be 3.30, East Coast, New York, it's getting dark, I better not walk. And I almost didn't. And then I looked outside and the school bus is going by and the kids are walking and I thought, you're just making excuses. People are still out there at 3.30 in the afternoon, even if it gets dark at 4.30. And I went out and walked and sort of... <laughs> Good for you. You I took the right thoughts off yeah. the conveyor belt. <laughs> and, and it worked. And I came back and I thought, I almost didn't do that. You know, I needed to disconnect from all this stuff I'm doing. And I had all kinds of excuses as to why I couldn't do it. But anyway, I did it and I was glad that I did it. So it makes a difference. Last thing you say, because we have a couple minutes left, but... Smile. What was what does smiling do for us? Again? Smile. Smile. You know, studies, science is just wonderful. I, I don't know how they get funded to do this, but uh, <laughs> new scientific studies show that even if you smile, it, that releases mood-enhancing endorphins. So, you know, just even relaxing your face muscles uh, and, and smiling. And you know what? If you even mean to smile, it, it releases even more. So just smile. You know, take a step back. Deep breathe. That's a big one, too. You know, try to take the, in those deep breaths and smile. Wiggle your shoulders around. There are things that you can do to actually calm and relax your body too and that will help your mind <laughs> just plain smile that's easy to do and I, I've seen pictures of myself where I'm not smiling just the opposite and I'm like shocked oh my mm-hmm. god get that expression off your face you know um, it can't possibly be helpful the non-smiling anyway great talking to you today um, I want to st- why worry stop coping and start living Catherine Tristan great book and the website is whyworrybook.com you can go to that website um, keep smiling and uh, great <laughs> Very great <laughs> advice today. Thank you, Catherine, because uh, practical, easy, people can do it. Um, you don't have to be in therapy for 20 years. You can, uh, <laughs> That's right. Right. Take the money. Smile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's for free. Anyway, have a good holiday. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. It's been a pleasure being on the show. Yeah. We right. are going to take a short break because my next guest is here, uh, David Ortman, and uh, David is a, uh, a psychotherapist, a sex therapist, and he's an author. He's in private practice, and his new book is Sexual Outsiders, Understanding BDSM Sexualities and Communities, and uh, uh, you'll, we'll, you'll find out more about what BDSM stands for. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays, 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and we archive the show at the end of the day. My next guest is David Ortman. He is a licensed social worker, a psychotherapist, sex therapist, author. Uh, he's in private practice, and he's written and published many in many journals, magazines, and anthologies. His new book is Sexual Outsiders, Understanding BDSM Sexualities and Communities. It is a guide for the BDSM community members who must wade through the quagmire of unique problems they face, i.e. coming out to family and friends, partners, distinguishing between abusive relationships and healthy consensual ones. Uh, lots of other issues involved in this quagmire, so I'm going to let David talk about that and also explain to us what the acronym BDSM means. Welcome to the show, David. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Good morning to you, too, as well. Well, this is a heady topic. You know, this is maybe, I don't know, maybe this is the last, uh, I don't know, and you can tell me because you're the therapist, but the kind of the last vestige of, of a group of sexual behaviors that people still don't have a lot of knowledge about. I think they think of it and there's a lot of shame associated with it. People don't, I, and, and there's a lot of stigma associated with the BDSM community. It's so, certain, certainly one of our, our last closets. Last closets, exactly. So what does BDSM stand for, first of all? It's a compound acronym for um, the words bondage and discipline, dominance, submission, sadism, and masochism. And it it serves as sort of an umbrella term uh, for forms of sexuality that incorporate restraint, pressure, sensation, and uh, elements of power exchange between people. David, why should we care? People listening may say, okay, but that's just a few people. It doesn't make any difference. I really don't want to hear about it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Who are we talking about and how many people are we talking about who engage in this behavior? 
Well, we're talking, depending on what you mean by engaged in this behavior, um, you know, up to 60 to 70% of people actually try some form of BDSM in their life, depending on which studies you're looking at. And, um, you know, between 10 and 12% of people who identify as, as uh, BDSM being a primary part of their identity. So we are talking about a large percentage of the population. And if you're talking about the friends and family lovers of these of these men and women who are in this community, you're talking about a pretty wide selection of society that should be somewhat educated about these communities. Give us an example of what it is, like in terms of sexual behavior. So we, we have people listening and thinking, okay, what exactly is it? I mean, people have, I know all, everybody has different visions or versions of what they think BDSM behavior is, but give us, you know, specific examples. Like I, I know in your book you have a lot of illustrations, case histories, examples of people who engage in um, BDSM sexuality. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's start with bondage. That's, I think that's a good example since it begins with the letter B. Um, it, it, bondage is an art of immobilizing someone, whether that's with rope or handcuffs or lengths of fabric. And not everyone is into this, but the art of being immobile um, gives you a, a freedom to let go and allow yourself to to be um, vulnerable to whatever your partner is doing to you, whether that's um, stroking you lightly with an ostrich feather or spanking your butt. Um, for me, I can't even tie my, my own shoes. But um, I think in a world that sometimes moves too fast, the feeling of immobility sexually can be liberating and intoxicating. Well, at what point, and I think this is something that I was thinking about before I, I read your book, like, but at what point, and I think this is important for people to, to sort of get a grasp on, like at what point does it become something that you could get hurt, that you, know, that you might, uh, you know, like the, the, is there a point, is there a, a red line or a line to cross when actually if you're engaged in this kind of behavior that, wow, you really could hurt yourself and permanently hurt yourself or your partner? Are you talking about physical injury or, or being hurt psychologically? Well, actually, let's both, but let's start with physical and then go on to the psychological. Sure. Um, I think when you're playing with any kind of, of, of props, whether they're whips or chains or posts or things that you can restrain an individual to, there's always a level of risk. Is, is the equipment stable? Has it been tested? Um, there's ways to assess for safety. We dedicated an entire chapter in the book to when things can and might go wrong. And essentially, it's an entire chapter that's an elongated checklist on what you need to watch out for um, when you're playing, when you're doing a BDSM scene. Now, now psychological. Um, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. That would be the physical. Okay, so there, there, there are some things that, that one shouldn't, do or that you have to be cautious about because you really could hurt yourself permanently, physically, if you engage sure. in Yeah. If you have uh, any, of course, if you, if, let's say if you and I were playing together, I would need to know everything uh, that was pertinent about your medical history. If you sprained your ankle last year, I should know that. Um, if I had appendicitis at some point, you should know that. Well, what um, kind of a turn on is that? Let's say you're with <laughs> somebody and you're having sex or the, for the first time, and, and well, that's another question. How do you, but, well, let's, you know, how do you, like, 
let somebody know that you're in, that this is the kind of sexual behavior that you engage in? I mean, does, or do you, do you just say it? Do you, or well, what do you do? Well, that's part of what we call negotiation. Before you play or enact a BDSM scene with a partner or partners, you want to disclose um, what you're what you're into, what turns you on, what doesn't turn you on, um, what are your hard limits? And when I say hard limits, what I mean is, what are you not willing to do? What are you not willing? What line are you not willing to go past, or what are you uncomfortable with? And you know, for some people, talking about their sexual limits is not a turn on, but unfortunately, it's very necessary when when you're doing scenes like this and incorporating power and you know, potentially restraints and props into it that you have this conversation. David, as a therapist, obviously you see a lot of people and you've done research for the book. What, when do people usually start engaging in this kind of sexual behavior? I mean, does it start like when you're a teenager, when you first start, uh, ha- you know, having some kind of sexual encounter with, with the opposite sex or the same sex or whoever you have sex with, but... Um, it, it, what, does it develop, or how, give me a, give us a kind of an, a, an overall picture? There's really not a whole lot of research out there to say when it develops. You know, across the board globally for people, people, individuals come to this uh, realization of what turns them on at different times in their lives. Some people, one of my one of my clients, likes to tell the story of um, he knew that he was into bondage when he watched. Batman on television in the 60s because every episode ended with, with Batman or, and Bruce Ward or Batman and Robin being restrained in this kind of tight spandex outfit, usually over a pit of fire or some, some uh, craziness from the 60s special effects world. But he carried that forward and that, that image stayed with him and, and he knew there was something different about his sexuality that eventually he was going to be curious enough to explore this. I have some clients who haven't, um, who've held fantasies of being restrained or being spanked or playing in some way with power dynamics uh, for most of their lives, but some of them haven't even begun to act on it yet. And that's part of the work they do with me. I, there was recently, and I think it was, when I say recently, like last week, and I don't know if you, maybe in the Huffington Post, and this was the title, Harvard to Approve BDSM Sex Club called Harvard College Munch. Yes, I read that. So it's BDSM, if there's a BDSM sex club at Harvard, I would assume that now um, that it's becoming, I I don't know if I want to use the word mainstream, but certainly coming out, um, the Harvard College Munch for the BDSM, and that they aren't the only ones, that they're Columbia, Tufts, MIT, and Yale also have them? Wow, all the best schools are developing them. Yeah, I wonder what, what that has to say. <laughs> that's what this article says in the Huffington Post. I mean, it says some of the elite institutions, um, Columbia, Tufts, MIT, and Yale have them. Uh, apparently, it didn't say whether they were officially recognized, but the clubs are there. Mm-hmm. So what does this say? I mean, I well, said it, be, it seems like things are becoming more mainstream in terms of that, that those sexualities. But you tell you're the expert. What this? I mean, I think this says a lot. I think it says a lot too, and I, I don't know if I use the word mainstream quite yet. But I think we are moving in that direction, and there's some resistance um, on the part of people in BDSM communities to be mainstreamed. There is something uh, romantic and sexy about being an outlaw, about being an outsider, but. Um, 
that this coming out of the kinky closet, if I can use that, uh, that metaphor, um, is happening more and more. And if these munches and social gatherings and clubs are opening up in universities across America, this is not unlike what happened in the 60s and 70s when gay and lesbian clubs uh, started forming on college campuses. You know, this, this is recent in our political and social history. And you can draw a lot of parallels between the way people responded with, with disgust and with fear when gay and lesbian communities came together um, in the 60s and 70s, and even as early as the 40s and 50s, um, we see that happening now with the kink, fetish, and BDSM communities. Well, even black and white couples not being able to marry each other in the 60s and people exactly. you know, thinking about a black and white couple together, how horrific that would be. Although there is, and maybe this is my own bias, and I don't see myself as judgmental, but I keep thinking, well, you could hurt yourself. The example that we gave really maybe psychologically, which we didn't get into, but physically I'm always thinking in terms of this, well, gosh, though, can't you hurt yourself? I mean, this Harvard article, this article in the Huffington Post said that, uh, one member said that uh, what she liked was being hit with a riding crop and mm-hmm. uh, belt and, and canes um, and quoted as saying, floggers are my favorite. See, that conjures up all this stuff. Boy, I could get hurt. Not intentionally, but it's certainly something that's, that's kind of like right there. I understand your concerns about being hurt, but one of the values that's core to BDSM communities across the world, actually, um, is, is education and mentorship. No one should pick up a crop or a flogger and just start swinging it um, at a random uh, sex club in Harvard, let's say, or Tufts. Um, there are levels of, of education and um, almost right to passage built into some of these BDSM clubs where you learn how to use this equipment. Um, responsibly, safely, effectively. And sometimes the goal, often the goal isn't necessarily pain as a sensation. I mean, there are many different ways that the brain experiences physical sensation. Um, so we're not looking at, most of the time we're not looking at environments where people can get hurt, although those are the concerns. But statistically speaking, people get injured more often crossing the street and engaging in any sort of BDSM activity. Well, what are the statistics? I mean, I'm always interested in kind of objective kinds of things like statistics. Are there statistics on how many people get hurt actually engaging BDSM sexualities? Very few, actually. Now you're going to make me open the book, Catherine. Uh, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to have to I'm work. I'm going to make you work for this. <laughs> you are going to have to work for this interview. Yeah, okay, exactly. go ahead. Tell us. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm trying to find the page now. Um, there are statistics. We can start with that, yeah. right? There yeah. are there are absolute, absolutely statistics, and um, the, uh, the the comparison that this this one researcher made was saying that it is much much more. You're more likely to get struck by lightning or get hit going to the grocery store than you are to get injured in a seriously injured in a BDSM scene. So what do parents say? They find out that their teenage kid, 14, 15, uh, is engaging in this kind of behavior. What do you suggest? You're a therapist. You're a sex therapist, but uh, you're a therapist in general as well. So when a parent comes to you, they know you're specialized in this form of behavior. What do you say to them? And they're, like, terrified because their 15-year-old daughter has somehow either told them or they found out, you know, uh, right. that she's you know, engaged in, in, in this kind of sexuality. So what do you say? What do you do? 
What do you recommend? Well, when parents come to me, I try to stress, stress two things. One is that playing with power in our society is, is quite a normal activity. Um, we have power is everywhere. To pretend that there are power differentials are, you know, is, is denying the fact that we're all different. And it's erotic and exciting and playful to play with them. I also try to stress to the parents as much as I possibly can for them to suspend their own sex negativity, their own judgment, um, their own fear. And I'm not talking fear for their child's safety. I'm talking fear of sexuality in general and the power that it has. And to try as best as they can to come from a non-judgmental space so they can talk to their child in a way that allows them some sexual autonomy and power and sense of self, while at the same time allowing a venue and a conversation to open up for, okay, are you connected to a BDSM club? Are you practicing safely? What have you learned? Who are your friends? How are you getting your information? There's a way that parents can have this conversation with their children in a healthy and sex-positive way, but it requires them to be led and guided a little bit. I don't think anyone can be expected right out of the gate as a parent to handle this um, without some advice and without some help, and that's, that's part of what I do is what I just explained to you in terms of how I approach it with parents. What about if it's the opposite? A kid or a, a child or one of, the, you know, the, one, one of your children discovers that, hey, you as a parent engage in this form of behavior, and they're upset about it, then, I mean, that's, then how, how do you handle that? I don't think the conversation needs to be different. So it's the same conversation, because it's, it's, it's really informing people, giving them information. Is that it? Yeah, and, it's, it's the same conversation. What you're doing is, you know, you're giving them information. Well, let me start, start a little further back. You're assessing whether, how safe they are, how they feel about it, um, whether they're practicing safely, are they connected to a community, and you're doing that as best as you possibly can from a neutral, sex-positive, affirming standpoint. I mean, the last thing that anyone, children, parents, adults, young person, teen, needs when they're coming out to someone about uh, being into BDSM or feeling that this lifestyle is a part of their identity, the last thing they need is, is a judge and jury. They need an ally. They need someone that they can speak to. And I think that involves suspending our preconceived notions of what is right and wrong or what is good or bad. So this kind of leads us into which we didn't met. We, you know, we've been talking about the physical, the psychological. What are the psychological implications of, of this kind of sexual behavior? And, and, there, and what are the psychological boundaries? And I mean, I know you talk about in the book the definition of violence and aggression. And like, you know, you can, by, that crosses psychological boundaries, I think, or if you consider yourself being violated or, uh, you know, I guess, assaulted against your will, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, one of the main things that we stress in the book, and I think the BDSM community stress, uh, stress across the board, is this idea of consent. Um, consent, yeah. Consent, yes. I mean, there's, there's no BDM, BDSM activity that happens without a conversation about consent. This is what we're consenting for for the evening. This is what we're consenting for uh, for our relationship in the short and long term. 
um, looking at things like, is there anger in the relationship? Is there a propensity toward violence? Um, aggression, is not ne- aggression is not necessarily a negative thing. Anger is not necessarily a negative thing. It's how it's expressed. That's how it's manifested. That can either be something healthy and transformative or it can be toxic and worrisome, troublesome. Can there be psychological ramifications that are really negative? Let's say if one, it may be 16 or 17 years old, let's say as a teenager and you're first experimenting with sex and sexual activities and partners and you, uh, you're, you are experimenting and engaging in BDSM sexualities, uh, can there be like psycholog- negative, really negative psychological ramifications if you decide hmm, maybe this is not for me, or have you had that experience with with people in your practice? Thus far in my practice, I haven't had experiences with people who are linked to a community having an experience that was psychologically traumatizing for them. I've had people experience psychological trauma when they've been practicing on their own or playing with someone that they don't know very well um, or playing in a situation where they they haven't talked about what they wanted or what they expect or what their limits are or the boundaries of consent haven't been explored. But that's not to say that couldn't happen in BDSM communities because um, this sexuality requires so much communication and responsibility to be you know, executed successfully. So why does, like, the current, and I, I don't know of all of the current medical and uh, standards, tend to view, don't they? I don't know what they say in the DSM, what is it, the DSM-5, 6, whatever it is, mm-hmm. diagnostic. But we're between a version of 4 and 5. Uh, between, all right, so we're between a version of 4 and 5. Um, what, um, do they say that this kind of behavior is sick or pathological? Is that... Um, it's not that specific. They're a little vague, actually. Um, the, the terms uh, sadism and masochism as used in the BDSM, uh, just in the BDSM, that was very Freudian, as used in the DSM, um, are, are vague scientifically. They, 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 they describe a problem arising when it impairs or interferes with someone's functioning. Now, the problem with that definition is who decides that it's impairing someone's functioning. Often it's a therapist. And as therapists, despite the fact that we may do our best and go to school to learn how to not make mistakes, oftentimes we bring our own psychological, political, and sexual baggage into the treatment room. So oftentimes we have the power to decide whether something is good or bad, right or wrong, sick or healthy. And that may not be true for our patients. Yeah, well, and that changes, obviously, as society changes. And we talked about it before. You know, it was uh, um, gay and lesbian relationships were considered sick, in, I think, 10 years ago or whatever it was. Or, uh, in so some all, states, yeah. they are still today. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, yes, it, there is a whole sociological component to the whole thing. Last question, David. How did you get into this field? I mean, what made you decide to specialize in uh, BDSM sexualities? Well, um, I'm out um, as not only someone who provides a service to the community, but someone who is actually into BDSM. I have been uh, probably since my first girlfriend in college tied me up unexpectedly, and it was, uh, it was a thrill. 
And um, I was a teacher for a while, and when I went to, uh, when they shipped me off to therapy school, I saw everyone, <laughs> I saw everyone um, specializing in anxiety and depression and uh, things that, I, that everyone else was specializing in. And I saw a real void in that no one was really talking about sex, kinky or otherwise, and that our profession really uh, fails us when it comes to educating us about the breadth of human sexuality. And I decided if I was going to go forward and practice that educating myself about sexuality and focusing on it in my practice and helping other people come to terms with their own sexuality was the path that I was called to take. So you got into this both personally and professionally. So you got you have, I guess, credentials from both sides. I guess I have what you would call street cred and academic cred. Okay, street cred and academic cred. You definitely have that both. That's great. Let's okay. We only have a couple minutes left, so let's just. Uh, I want to you know the book Sexual and Outsiders, David Ortman, and you co-authored the book with Richard Sprout. With Richard Sprout. Sprout. Yeah. Richard Sprout. We can get the book at bookstores everywhere, online. And you can get it online on Amazon, and you can order it through our website, which is sexualoutsiders.com. Yeah, so what's, what's on your website? Is it, uh, it's not just the book, but is there information? Um, what, what, what specifically is on the website if listeners go to, to the website? What is the website, actually? Okay, um, there's uh, sexualoutsiders.com, all one word, no spaces. Uh-huh. And there's a summary of the book as well as all of the reviews and um, uh, links to our Facebook page, our Twitter page, a biography of myself, a biography of Richard, um, and uh, places where you can all order the book. Right. A great Christmas present. This could be a Christmas present for your grandmother. (laughs) Um, It's going to be a Christmas present certainly for my mother. My grandmother's no longer alive. But um, (laughs) I think my grandmother would really enjoy this book. I mean, we wrote it for... We wrote it for everyone to understand. This is not this is not a medical tome for psychologists and and and, and for medical doctors uh, and psychotherapists only. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's important. It is. It's for lay people. So sexual encounters. Absolutely. David Ortman, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Very You're enlightening. Welcome. Yeah. Great. You're very Thank welcome. You. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.